We're going to jump in, uh, continuing in through Galatians here, closing out chapter 3 tonight. And uh, you guys been enjoying Galatians? Yeah? Galatians been good. Uh, I was telling somebody earlier, like, it's been really good for me studying Galatians. Like, it's, it's just refreshing to remind myself again of the gospel and the simplicity of things and uh, kind of have Paul chastise me a little bit. That's kind of how it feels. Um, this whole book, this letter, Paul is dealing, he's confronting this group that we've called the legalists or the Judaizers, a group that has been distorting the gospel, a group that has been uh, perverting the gospel They've been adding to or subtracting from the simplicity of the gospel, and Paul is confronting that. He'll have none of it. He's pretty aggressive with his uh, dealing with this. Um, he's systematically clarifying over and over and over again for us the gospel. And he's been using, in, the, in chapter 3, he's been using some of the tradition and the historic faith and the line of Abraham to make his point. In our passage tonight, Paul's going to go, he's going to further develop uh, what the gospel is and what true Christianity is. He's going to further develop it, and he's essentially going to break down the difference between Christianity and every other faith. There's a, there's a difference between us and every other religion, and in every other religion... It's our attempt, humans' attempt, to reach for God. Every other worldview, every other religion is about your attempt through wisdom or through effort or achievement, your, uh, your ability through ethics and sacrifice to somehow attain to the supernatural, to reach out to God. And our faith is different. For us, he came to us. He reached down to us. He pursued us. In fact, he's still in pursuit of us. And that's the key difference between our faith and every other religion. God reached down. It's not about your wisdom. It's not about your achievement. It's not about your sacrifice or your effort or anything you or I do. It's solely about the work that he has already accomplished the work of Jesus. This really then, though, begs the question, and this is where we'll get into our passage tonight. It begs the question, what about the law? What about the Old Testament? What about the law of Moses, the Torah? What about the Ten Commandments? What do we do with that? Was it a mistake? Did God, like, oops, we tried that, it didn't work, we're going to change it up now? Uh, no. No, that's, that's not the case. That's not how we should view the law. That's not how we should relate to the law. The question really is, what's the point then? What, what's the point of the law? And I think that's what Paul is addressing in our passage tonight as he's closing out this chapter. Rounding out his argument, and he's making uh, really striking statements that we'll have to wrestle with as we go on through this passage. Let's, let's look at our passage. Verse 23. 
You might want to have your Bibles open. Um, I'm not sure it's on the screens. I don't think it is. So, verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law, Paul says, kept us captive, kept us under guard. Some translations will have protective custody. The law held you under guard. Some translations might even imprisoned under the law. He says the law was like our our guardian. The law kept humanity in protective custody. It kept sin in check. The law ultimately had a purpose. God had a purpose in the law that was good and beautiful. It held back the tide of human sinfulness uh, so much so that it could preserve a people ultimately to bring about the Messiah. It guarded humanity as a protective custodian. How did the law protect us? The law protected us by revealing God's heart. It showed us what he was like, his heart for us. It protected us by showing us an ideal way to live. It painted a picture for us of an ideal life structure, an ideal way to live. It protected us by showing us uh, what we should approve of and disapprove of. Gives us context of where to put things, how to evaluate things. It protected us by providing a foundation for every civil law throughout history. In all of these ways and, and more, the law, like Paul says, it was a guardian. It kept watch over us. It, it held us back. The law of Moses, though, didn't just protect us. It also, according to Paul, prepares us for the coming of Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. It pre- prepared us uh, to see him. It reveals God's character and exposed sin Paul says, so then the law of Moses was the guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The purpose, therefore, of the law, the purpose of your Old Testament, uh, the law of Moses, it, it, it's fulfilled when we stop trying to justify ourselves by it and when we find Jesus. It's fulfilled in that moment. The whole purpose of the law, Paul's argument, is to bring us to Jesus. The purpose of the law, ultimately, is to bring us and to point us to Jesus. And if someone doesn't present the law in a manner that, that brings, the per, brings somebody to faith, brings somebody to uh, willing obedience of Jesus, then they're probably not presenting the law correctly. Jesus, think about the way Jesus referred to the law. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, uh, 
directly addresses the law. Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. 17 through 48, Jesus is talking about the law. And it's helpful to see the way Jesus related to the law. This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The way Jesus represented the law, the way he presented the law, was that it showed, it showed people ultimately, and that's what you, if you read through the rest of these, shows people ultimately you can't fulfill it. So Jesus takes murder, shall not murder, right? And he takes that and he says, that's simple enough. Nobody in this room is probably murdered. But then he elevates it, right? If you look at your brother, if you say, if you, say you fool, you've already committed murder in your heart. Takes adultery and he says, that's simple enough. But then he elevates it. If you look at a woman with eyes of lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Does the same thing for divorce and for oaths and commitments. He's clarifying, you can't fulfill this. You could not do it. You needed to look outside of the law keeping to find a righteousness that is somehow greater than that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they held their hat on the fact that they tried to keep the law perfectly. And Jesus is saying, you need to find a way to, to do this outside of yourself because you can't. That is better somehow than the Pharisees and the scribes. I found this quote this week, John Stott said, Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by the law, which God gave to prove us as sinners. Satan would have us prove ourselves holy by using the law, but God gave us the law to prove that we're sinners. It's, it's not there to make us holy. It's only Jesus that can do that. But the law was a gift from God. It's important to highlight, Paul says in verse 23, the law, try to pull this back up. Verse 23 of Galatians, before faith came, you were held captive under the law. That's really important, before faith came. The purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith, not by keeping of the law. Really, this then forces the question, what then is our relationship to the law? What do we do with it? Paul says that the law was our guardian. 
Some translations will call it your tutor. The law was a tutor that leads us to Christ. Most of them have guardian. There's a fascinating word, guardian or tutor. Uh, We don't really have a good English version of this word. We don't have a good English counterpart. So this word in Greek, uh, pedagogos. We get the word uh, pedagogy from it. This word was a unique role. This, This person was a unique role in the Roman household. It was not simply a teacher, which is why the word tutor doesn't really work for us. Not, not a teacher. Uh, there's a different word for that. It was more than that. It was the child's guardian. This person watched over the child, watched over his behavior. Uh, the idea is more like a nanny or like a... I mean, it's joking around with Jordan, or it's kind of like Alfred to Bruce. <laughs> like somebody who cared for and watched and, and took care of this child. The, it, it could also be translated custodian. This custodian was not necessarily a teacher. He exercised general supervision over the boy's activities, and it was his responsibility to ultimately to bring him to the teacher and to give, who would then give him instruction. It was usually a slave or could be a hired person, but this was an important figure in a Roman household, a well-to-do Roman household. Uh, this person was charged with the supervision of the conduct of the sons in the household. He was distinguished and separate from the teachers. He didn't give any formal instruction, but he carried out the directives of the father. So if the father said to do something, the custodian or the, this, it was this person's job to make sure that they happened, that the son fulfilled what he was supposed to do. Therefore, of course, indirectly, this person was teaching the boys because he was carrying out and giving discipline and administrating this child's life. And here's Paul's point. When the child, when the boy grew up, it's not that he, he doesn't go away, sorry, he doesn't do away with the lessons that he learned, the discipline that he gained from his guardian, he doesn't just throw all that out. All the, the, the uh, discipline and the accountability, the, the life lessons that he learned from this guardian, he doesn't just do away with those things. But also, he doesn't live under that tutor anymore. He's not under that guardian in his hand of control anymore. This is our relationship with the law of God, according to Paul. We learn from it. We remember the lessons from it. They have shaped us and formed us. It's a good thing. The law is good. But we don't live under it like the boy living under his guardian. Paul says, for those who are in Christ, you are no longer under the direction of the guardian. There's an expected maturity now. 
to go back and to place yourself under the guardian again would be to live sub-Christian. It would be to live, in effect, renouncing Jesus and trying to become a, a child again. There's a, an expected maturity that has developed. We need to grow up into Christ and in, in maturity in him. Spurgeon said it this way. The law ceases its office as schoolmaster. That's another way of translating this. Schoolmaster, when it comes to be written in our hearts. Boys have their lessons on chalkboards, but men have laws in their minds and hearts. We trust a man when we should carefully watch over a boy. When a child becomes a man, his father and mother do not write down little rules for him as they did when he was a little child. He's trusted. His manhood is trusted. His honor is trusted. His best feelings are trusted. So now, brethren, when we have believed in Christ and have his law written here in our hearts, and it corresponds to what is written in the scripture, we are no longer under that guardian. The question is, now that we're in Christ, where does that leave us? We're in Christ. We're no longer under that guardian. The law is now written on our heart. What does that, what does that leave us? Where's our identity from here? Paul expounds. He keeps going. Verse 25. It says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. In Christ, you are all sons of God, sons and daughters of God through faith. It's not by keeping any external standard or rules or anything that you can do that you have been adopted into the family. It's by faith in something that Jesus has accomplished. Remember, faith, we looked at this a few weeks ago, faith is more than just mental agreement. It's more than just a cognitive, like, oh yeah, I, I, I know that Jesus was a real person, that he lived, that he died, that he really went to the cross. It's more than just that. Faith has to do with trust and faithfulness. It's relying on him and nothing else. You are sons and daughters of Christ. And Paul takes it even further, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is an amazing verse. This is a verse that you could spend all week probably meditating on. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. To be baptized means to be immersed. Think about your baptism. Hopefully you all have been baptized, or if you're a follower of Jesus. When a person goes under the water in baptism, and when you look at that person, if you, the pastor holds them underwater a little extra long, <laughs> if you look at somebody underwater, you see that person, if you're looking through the water, but you see the water. That what you see of the person is like a a shadow, 
and you see the water ultimately. That person is covered by the water when they're in baptism. The water covers us. We're immersed in the water. Paul's saying when you're baptized into Christ, you're immersed in him. The, the, the picture is that when people look at you, they see Jesus. They see the faint image of you behind through him, but they see Jesus covered up by him. There's no room, sorry if you're Presbyterian here, there's no room for a sprinkling here. There's no room to leave part of your body out of the water. You are to be baptized, immersed in Christ. This is ultimately, guys, this, this is the baptism that really saves us. That you are, you could be dunked over and over and over again in a tank of water, but if you're not baptized in Christ, if you haven't surrendered your life to be fully immersed in Jesus, that's just a symbol. But once you have done that, once you have fully surrendered your life and been baptized into Christ, you'll want to be baptized. That's, that's the point there. Paul strengthens his point. The second phrase there, he baptized in Christ, put on Christ. He says to put on Christ. This is a figure of speech implying that we should be clothed in Christ. That we should put him on like we put our clothes on. Are we dressed today? Have we put on Christ? I remember years ago, we, we, don't, we don't do Little League anymore, but I remember we first signed our boys up for Little League, and they were playing for the Yankees, I think it was. And uh, I, I was disappointed. But the Yankees, and uh, I remember we go to the parent meeting, and the coach, <laughs> he quotes Deion Sanders, I think it was. And he says, he, he's given us reason why we have to go pay extra for fancy uniforms. There was a Yankees uniform. We wanted pinstripe pants and the correct belt, the same matching cleats, fancy hat. And he said, this is, I think, Deion Sanders, he said, uh, look good, feel good, play good. You guys heard it? Look good, feel good, play good. I've actually since heard my kid's cycling coach say the same thing again, trying to get me to buy a fancy helmet that matches their kit. Uh, it is what it is. Um, we ended up getting the helmets. Um, but there's truth to this. There's, there is actually truth uh, that we, what you wear affects how, what you do. We respond differently based off how we're clothed. If I'm wearing nice clothes, I'm not going to go work in the yard. You're not, like, it's just not going to happen. Actually, my wife might beg to differ because I have grease all over all my nice clothes from, like, randomly working on cars or something. But uh, you're not supposed to. If I'm wearing work clothes, ready to go work on the yard, I'm not going to sit down, probably not, and watch TV or hang out. I'm dressed to do something. I'm going to go do it. 
If I have a cycling kit on, I'm definitely not just going to hang out. I'm going to (laughs) go ride my bike. (laughs) Right? I mean, fly fishing. If you have waders on, you're you're to go fishing. You're not going to just hang out in the waders. That would be kind of weird. What you wear has an effect on how you see yourself. What you wear has an effect on how you see others. And Paul is saying that we should dress appropriately for the occasion. That every day we should put on Christ. People should see that you belong to him. There should be something distinguished about how you live. And when people look at you, they should see Christ. We should live with an awareness that we are clothed in Christ. That we have put him on. And this is more than just play or acting. Ultimately, we know that there's biblical truth here. This is our identity. We are in Christ Jesus. It's important too that it's not just that we're associating with him. I think there's a lot of people, this is huge, many churches are full of people who associate with Christ. They call themselves a Christian. They attend church as a club. They associate with him. But the call here from Paul is not just to associate from a distance, but to be immersed with or clothed with Christ. To put him on. Think back to the analogy Paul used with baptism. You you can't or you could just stand along the side of the baptism or, or stand alongside of the river and be associated with the water. That's an option. You could stand at a distance. But that's not the point. Get in the water. Be immersed in him. Be baptized. You Clothes. Uh, I think many of us are comfortable having an outfit of clothes that we look at or whatever, an outfit that hangs in the closet or, or you display even. But that's not the same as putting it on and, and getting to work. It's not enough. It's not enough just to associate with Christ. We have to put him on. And when we put on Christ, and when we're in him, Our identity is found in him. This means that if we are sons of God, if we're a daughter or a son of God, then we, if he, sorry, if he's a son of God, then so are we. If he stands boldly before the throne room because he has access, so do we. If he has victory over the power of sin, power of the enemy, so do we. We're in Christ. This has vast implications, and not just for us personally. Let's, let's look, keep going in this passage, verse 28. And this has become a slogan sort of for unity and inclusiveness. But let's look at what Paul has to say here. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. At the time, some rabbis, some rabbis quoted a morning prayer. There's, there's, legend has it, rabbis quoted this morning prayer 
uh, that went something like this. We, they would thank God that they were not born a Gentile. They would thank God that they were not born a slave and that they were not born a woman. And Paul directly confronts these three categories in this statement. He goes pretty hard after them. He shows that they are all on equal footing, level footing together. Our identity is found in Christ and anything else uh, is secondary. We're all on level footing. The point here is that all other things that we divide on, all other things that we separate ourselves and draw lines among us, that we find our identity in, they need to fall behind our supreme identity. They're secondary. We are in Christ. We live in a time of identity politics, guys. We live in a time when everything is about your identity. You can make up your identity. You can choose whatever identity you want. There's no limits. And the reality is, we do this in the church. We draw lines. Some draw lines between denominations and faith traditions. Some draw lines between race and, and uh, ethnicity. Some draw lines between nationality, nations. Some draw lines between political parties. Some draw lines between economic classes. And there's some use to some of these secondary identities. I mean, they, they allow us to gather, they create communities around these identities. But if this is the first thing that comes to mind, if one of these secondary identities, if when somebody says, tell me about yourself, who are you? If the first thing that comes to mind is one of those secondary identities, I, I'm a dad, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a business owner, I'm a pastor, I'm, we talked a lot about bikes today, I'm a cyclist, or I'm a coffee snob, really, that's, that's a big part of my identity. Uh, <laughs> nowadays, we have to clarify, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a heterosexual white male. If any of those things become our predominant identity, and those are the knee-jerk reaction, like when somebody says, who are you? And we go to any of those things, there's, there's room to take a step back and reevaluate. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a Christian. Predominantly, the chief identity over all of those other things, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. We're in trouble when we elevate any of these identities over who we're called to be. You guys, we're called to put on Christ, to be in him. John Stott again says this. When we say that Christ has the abolished Sorry, when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we mean not that they do not exist, but that they no longer create any barriers amongst us. Let me give another example here. If you have more common ground with an unbeliever who happens to share your political bent, than you do with somebody 
within the faith, another believer here at church, there's probably something wrong. You've drawn lines outside of what Jesus has allowed lines to be drawn. You're allowing things to be more central to you than they should be. Even good things. It's a good litmus test to evaluate what is most important to me. Where am I finding my identity? What is chief amongst my identities? We are connected as believers. We are in Christ, and therefore, we're connected to each other. We're on level ground. Then this last verse, verse 29, it's amazing. He says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We walk ultimately in the same line of God's people. The same line Abraham walked in. We're in the same lineage and heirs with Paul and with Peter, Polycarp and Ignatius, with Augustine and Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, yeah, Jonathan Edwards, you name it. We're in this lineage of faith that goes back. We're all connected in Christ. And if we are Christ, then we know that we belong to him. Verse 29, if you are Christ, that's the key right there, if you are Christ. And this is the key for Paul's argument. It's not, are you under the law? It's not, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? It's not, are you a slave or are you free? It's not, are you a man or are you a woman? None of those things are what we're looking at. The only issue is, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? If we are Christ's, then we know that we belong. We know our identity. It's set. We find our place ultimately in eternity because Paul says here we are sons of God, daughters of God. We find our place in society, brothers and sisters together on equal footing. We find our place in history, part of God's great plan through Abraham to bring about the restoration of all things. This passage enables us to answer the most basic of all human questions. Who are we? And ultimately, the answer is, I am in Christ. I'm a son of God in Christ. In Christ, I'm united to God's people. In Christ, I'm united to God's people past, present, and future. I'm in Christ. We have a place we don't need to live aimlessly and directionlessly, but we can look to him above all those secondary things. We are his ultimately because of what he has done. My prayer this week is, I've got a few other passages here from Paul just to look at. 
that we would put on Christ. Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says again, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Make no provision for the flesh. Paul says, you are crucified with Christ. Remember, that's Galatians 2. We looked at this a few weeks ago. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that also in Romans chapter 6. We know that the old self has been crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we are also, we will also live with him. Guys, that's Paul's point here. I think for this week, it'd be healthy for us to reevaluate, reorient our identities. What are those things? We all have those things. I listed mine, coffee snob and all those things. We all have those things. What are we holding above that central identity? Being in Christ, immersed in him. What are we holding as supreme What if it was to go away tomorrow would devastate you? It's worth time taking time to evaluate that. We are to be in him. Remind ourselves that we are in him. And it's because of him, because of what he accomplished on the cross. Not because of anything we did or could do, but simply because of the work of the cross that he has made a way. It's not enough to associate only with him. We need to put him on. Amen? Jordan, you can come on back up. I'm going to pray for us as we close. Father, I thank you. for all that you have accomplished by the cross. God, I thank you that there is nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. There's nothing in me that merits the grace that you've given. God, I pray that we would be a people that are immersed in Christ. That when our coworkers, the people at the grocery store, or at the cafes we visit, when, when people see us, they would see the resemblance of Jesus, that we would be clothed in him, that we would put on his righteousness, that we'd put on Christ-likeness, that we would represent him well, as ambassadors of Christ. 
God, remind us regularly that we are in Christ, that everything else is secondary to that. Jesus, we love you and we trust you.